0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Take Cast. My name is Davis Matic. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I was joined by my buddy Peter Overzet, former guest of the show, and we talked about a lot of interesting things to this audience. We talked about the new Libra coin launched by Facebook. We of course talked about Bitcoin and its resurgent price. We talked about Ethereum a little bit and ERC-20 tokens. Then we shifted focus and talked about digital minimal. And the impact that all the devices and screens are having on all of our lives, and how we can counteract some of the harmful things that all those screens and apps do to our our lives. You know, even our bodies and our brains. And then, you know, because this is still a Davis Matic podcast, we of course had to talk about zero running back drafting and uh, how Peter plans to implement that in a high stakes league team that he does every year out in Las Vegas. Of course, if you want to. Support the show, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes. That is always extremely helpful. And also, you can subscribe to the show on Patreon to get bonus episodes of the show and to support the content that we're putting out here. We are sponsored by dailyrodo.com. You can get 10% off the best DFS tools and projections in the industry using the promo code Rory. And we are also sponsored by RotoExperts.com for $39.99. You can get access to projections, rankings, articles, and tools uh, produced by the Daily Roto crew, and the content is uh, headed up by yours truly, Davis Matic, and you can get 10% off of that package using the promo code Matic. Now let's get into the show. All right, everyone, bringing back in one of my favorite guests that we've ever had on the show, another, another repeat guest, Peter Overzet. Uh, you might know him as, uh, as Peter Manzanelli, but uh, we're, we're, he's not going to be in character today. I actually tried to get him on uh, a couple weeks ago to talk about Bitcoin and crypto, but I'm glad that we waited a couple weeks because we have uh, an even better topic now to, to begin this discussion with.
1: Yeah, I mean Bitcoin's out, Zuckbucks, dude. That's the that's the new rage. It's it's over for Bitcoin, right? It's it's just Facebook dollars now.
0: It's not it's not over for Bitcoin, but <laughs> when we had uh so I had Aaron Lammer on the show and we talked about Facebook coin and on his podcast, Coin Talk Show, they talked about Facebook coin for a year, and then they they did a big episode win Libra came out. And so for for the people, why don't you give the, the layman's understanding of what Libra is?
1: Yeah. So as I understand it, Facebook wants to release their own cryptocurrency and it is going to be on a blockchain, a publicly um, viewable blockchain. Uh, the rub is that obviously it's not going to be decentralized. It's going to be controlled by Facebook and this Libra corporation that's made up of a bunch of these companies, some that we know like Spotify and such, and then also a bunch of other kind of companies. And basically their goal, and we've heard this phrase in crypto before, to to bank the unbanked. Bank
0: the unbanked, yeah. Bank
1: the unbanked. And they want to provide people who don't have access to a bank a way to have currency, you know, specifically for people a lot who send money back home to relatives, they don't have a bank that's very hard to do with Venmo and PayPal. And so Libra coin is going to be this coin that exists within all these platforms that, you know, everyone around the world, like a high amount have mobile phones that might not have access to the bank. So if they can find a way to integrate a currency into the apps they use, like Facebook and Spotify and Uber, then they, uh, they don't necessarily need a bank. And they're trying to filled this void. But as I'm sure we'll discuss, there's a a lot of maybe nefarious underpinnings uh, to how this could play out. So
0: first, I think it is important to note, this isn't just a world domination thing. this is actually a real problem. Um, remittance costs on these payments that a lot of people use, what a lot of people use is Western Union, and I mean western union is is not criminal, but it's like kind of close. Like charging people who are already pretty poor twenty five percent of their transaction to send money back home or you know to Venezuela or to Mexico or to wherever their their poor relatives live it, it's not good. It is not good to be charging poor people commission to move money. So like that is true.
1: Yeah, and all the incentives align, right? Because these big companies don't want to pay the credit card companies the fees too. It's the same reason when you go into a coffee shop, they'll give you a little bit of a kickback if you if you pay in cash. So the incentives kind of align here for these big companies and, you know, the people who don't have banks. Everyone wants to cut out the credit card, you know, companies and those outrageous fees.
0: Yeah, so everyone pretty much in the world can agree being charged extra money to pay for something sucks. So that is the that is the first idea behind LibraCoin. Where the problematic nature comes in is if Mark Zuckerberg and the Co Libra Foundation, which by the way I think is they're doing this for some legal reasons, is technically Facebook does not own or run the libra coin the the co libra foundation which is i think based in switzerland is the is the blockchain sort of uh, initiative that is running and operating libra coin but basically it's mark zuckerberg and the facebook corporation which we all know mark zuckerberg and the facebook corporation uh, they're, i mean they they're just kind of evil that's just sort of the way that it goes i don't even know if it's evil it's just the whole entity exists to get your data sp- figure out what you want to buy, sell that data, and sell you more shit. Yeah.
1: I mean, when you think about it, their they're end game with this is if all of the money uh, that you use exists within these apps and you never have to pull it out because you can just move it around and pay for things within these apps, then they can go directly to advertisers and say, we can put your link in here to purchase. And they never even have to leave to go to an Amazon or whatever it may be, a, a third party place to process that thing so then the amount of advertising upside for them if this hits is just massive um and then that advertising stuff results in data and data that they can sell more and more so you can definitely see their in-game and in why this is a massively profitable kind of space for them to go and even bigger than just the the web advertising space
0: so Another reason why this is problematic, besides besides the fact that this is pretty clearly an attempt to just get more of your data to sell you more stuff, is the idea that Mark Zuckerberg would be the banker of, like, all of the poor nations in the world is... I mean, just giving that responsibility to anyone. I don't even want this to be like Mark Zuckerberg is the devil. Because like, I I mean, I don't know. He seems like a whatever sort of guy. But just giving one body or one person or one entity all of that power over all these countries seems problematic. And I think there's a pretty decent chance that this coin succeeds because so many people have cheap cell phones and so many people have Facebook.
1: Oh, yeah. And one thing we should probably mention about this that makes it different, if people just hear the word cryptocurrency, and they assume it's going to be this super volatile asset is that it's going to be pegged almost like a a tether or whatever one to one to, you know, a Federal Reserve type of coin, whether that's the US dollar, I don't know exactly how that'll work in other countries if what it's pegged to, but it is supposed to stay like one to one. So people who are sending money and remittances and stuff like that, they don't have to worry about the value of Libra Coin cratering, and it's not an investment. Opportunity yeah, it's a it's a
0: it's a stable coin.
1: Yeah, um, but yeah, I think the thing when I was really looking into this that is so sneaky about it, and kind of reveals the more sinister side to what you know Zuckerberg and Facebook are doing here is that by like spreading out the regulatory compliance across the Libra corporation, you know, marooning it over in Switzerland, dividing it up a
0: bunch, all these other companies is that 27 companies are a member of this Calibra board.
1: Yeah. So Facebook, isn't going to take all the direct regulatory heat for when this comes up because it's just it's spread out so much but they're also going to benefit from the way that you know bitcoin proliferates against across all these exchanges because they're making it open source they're allowing other developers to create libra exchanges even though they'll be an official one so they basically get to have their cake and eat it too right like when the governments come or want to you know control this. They can just hide among, among all these various companies, but then they get the benefits of, you know, it spreading in all these different areas that they don't have to worry about regulation.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's this is all very intelligently done. It's all very well thought out. And I guess one of the things I would say that is positive about the release is several governmental bodies have already realized that this is problematic. So uh, the French finance ministry has basically already come out and been like, this is not going to be a thing in France. We're we're not going to allow this to be like an unregulated normal currency that's happening in France and um, some democratic senators have already like been, have already taken a stance of like, this is not a good thing. However, I think if you told Zuckerberg and the Calibra board, this is going to succeed really well in a lot of countries without strong finance ministries or strong central banks, but it's going to be illegal in great Britain, France, and the United States, I think they'd probably take it.
1: Yeah, and where do you? I feel like another popular conversation now in the crypto space is is like the question they always like to ask: Is this good for crypto? So, it, what is it from your point of view? What is is Libra good for for crypto in, in Bitcoin? I feel like oh, it's, it's
0: this is a massive bull signal for for crypto. I actually think it's probably not great for Ethereum though because Calibra basically is going to do very similar to what all the Ethereum, like, offshoots want to do. So, like, you know, Stellar Lumens and XRP, not that those are ERC-20 tokens, but, you know, the whole concept behind um, Ripple and Stellar Lumens is, you know, faster international transactions, right? And this is faster international transactions as a stable coin and with a bigger, like, business body behind it. And I don't know, to me all the like F offshoot coins. Like it was fun in 2016 when they were all going to the moon or whatever, but you know, like, I don't know what, what application do these like really niche? Like what is Denta coin going to be in 2019? You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you I, like to, you could make, you can look at it from both sides, right? That, that the fact that if it is successful, it'll make people more, um, or I guess actually look at it from this way. if If this does become a boon, people will maybe look at Bitcoin and realize why the decentralization is so important. So important,
0: right. Yeah, I think that's a great point.
1: But that feels like a long way away. It's like first Libra has to blow up, then we have to realize why that could potentially have its downfalls. But- the reason I think it could be bad is like one of the hard things for Bitcoin, right, is the adoption and the on ramps and the custodial stuff, like that stuff is still really hard for people to manage or, or, you know, just to even dive into that. So with Libra, right, I mean, it's going to be so easy. And it's going to be within apps that people are already comfortable and familiar with in that barrier of entry is going to be so low. And to me that it's like, why would I mess around with moving bitcoin around all these wallets when i could log into facebook and get libra right there and not have to worry about it i mean that i feel like could be a concern if it's just that easy which bitcoin has never been that easy
0: i mean it, right so right now the only way to turn your u.s dollars into bitcoin are coinbase the cash app and gemini right is can you do it on? i don't think you can do it on binance or bitfinex can you not finance, I'm
1: not sure about the other.
0: Maybe maybe on Bitfinex, but basically, pretty much if you live in the United States and you have bought Bitcoin, you probably did it on Coinbase, and if you didn't do it on Coinbase, you probably did it on Gemini. I would assume 75% of people who live in America did it through those two exchanges, and Coinbase and Gemini are pretty easy to use, but that's pretty easy to use for someone who's like always online and sort of understands the concept of owning currency that only exists online, but like if I told my dad, okay, you need to go buy some Bitcoin, I I don't I, do, I honestly don't know if he'd be able to do it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I I've had this thought the, even recently, and I think I'm gonna do it. Um, and it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm thinking of moving all of my Bitcoin off my Ledger and on and on back onto Gemini, and just having it all there for a couple reasons. And and one of them is just the more I think about the custodial aspect, I'm just more worried about the points of failure with my own, you know, keep safe. Right. Right. So like, okay.
0: My ledger is right here. I'm holding it up. I'm looking at it. And for me to go and get all of my Bitcoin off of this right now, it would take… Probably two hours, right? So I'd have to I'd have to fire it up. I'd have to get my ledger manager up. I'd have to type in my password. I'd have to use my recovery phrase because I haven't turned it on in you like sprinkle the
1: holy water, do the seance, yeah. And then, and
0: then it would play. take and it would take uh you know what, probably like an hour for the transaction to confirm and get on Coinbase. And I guess the thing is is I I mean I trust Coinbase and Gemini with my money, right? Like I, I think that those two are reputable places. Uh, probably, I would assume they both have some FDIC backing.
1: I mean, Gemini definitely does. That's where I've been keeping mind, And I've actually been pretty impressed with the kind of security measures and stuff that they continue to roll out. They're treating it more like a bank. Gemini now sends monthly uh, reports on your account. Um, and it just, it's made me more and more comfortable with them being in charge of it than, uh, than me, which is funny when part of the whole kind of You know, appeal of Bitcoin was like, unless you control your keys, you don't control your money and all that. But
0: I still think that is, by the way, I still believe that to be true. I still believe it to be true that if if your Bitcoin is on an exchange, you you don't own it. You, You might have the rights to it, but there are definitely scenarios or stories you could tell where you don't end up owning that Bitcoin tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's the same with our money in our Capital One bank versus money underneath our mattress, right? Like, it, it's the same. We don't technically, um, but I just, I, I think the use cases for those, and, and those guys on the show, Coin Talk and Lammer and Jay King have talked about this too, how a lot of the best use cases for Bitcoin are for those people in, in Venezuela and for the people moving across borders and stuff like that. Whereas the Bitcoin use case for, you know, uh, relatively... Um, you know, uh, affluent middle-class people in the United States isn't, isn't that great. Um, and yeah, so I've just been thinking about that a lot and how i it feeling more comfortable about holding my Bitcoin on that exchange and just not taking on the risk of me losing my ledger, or, you know, my passcodes and all that.
0: So something that I did, and I actually did this yesterday because I, I've been buying on the way down and I'll, I'll admit, I've also been buying on the way back up a little bit too. I bought, So I bought a, a decent chunk at 3K and I bought more at 6K and I bought more at 7K and I was just looking at stuff yesterday and I was like, I'll probably buy more. And what I did was I just set up a recurring buy on Coinbase. I'd never done it before. I just sort of slowly bought whenever it, like I felt like it was a good time. But guess what? I don't know anything. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know anything about technical analysis. I'm not, I I don't consider myself like a super savvy financial investor, but I know five years from now I'm going to be much more happy holding two Bitcoins as opposed to half a Bitcoin, right? And so if you just set up that... I also saw this great tweet the other day that said if you had just bought $10 worth of Bitcoin every week since the all-time high, so you started buying it at 19 k when it hit there. It was like right after Thanksgiving in 2016. The price has steadily gone down since then, but you'd actually have more US dollars worth now than if you had just not bought it. Like, then it... like. It had still appreciated in value, even though the price had fluctuated so much over that time.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the I haven't been uh, accumulating as much just because I already have as much as I'm kind of comfortable with having. But one of the lessons that I really want to practice this next go around is, you know, you were describing do- dollar cost averaging in and I want to, you know, as much as I'm a believer in it long term, I also want to kind of dollar cost average out. Yeah, outcast. you want to make
0: you want to make some money along this.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we're not there yet. I mean, I'm talking when we like crest all time highs again, and you know, you know, the people at your local diner are starting to talk about it again, and you get those indicators that you might be hitting another bubble. We but need, yeah, we
0: need another we need another New York Times cover article talking about the Bitcoin boys.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. So, no, I just want to be ready for it that time around to make sure I am taking some of the chips off the table as it heads to kind of untenable territory again. And I think it's going to be much bigger this time around when that happens. And now we're just in that kind of steady build phase here.
0: I mean – Looking back, some of the the most insane sell signals that could ever exist in the world were there. Bitcoin was like on the cover of all these magazines. If you went to the App Store, like the top five apps on the Apple App Store were all exchanges or like the Google Authenticator or CoinMarketCap. Like there there just could not have been more sell signals. And I I will probably live the rest of my life regretting not selling Ethereum when it crested 1K. Yeah like I had like a decent chunk, like that would have been like a sort of life changing money for me had I chosen to sell then. And I was just like, nah, man, I believe, bro. We're going Ethereum 10K Bitcoin, hundred K.
1: It's so hard. I mean, I, the, that one axiom and it's so true about if you just contra traded your emotions with this stuff. I mean, when Bitcoin was at 4,000, you know what, three or four months ago, I mean, you just couldn't even stomach the idea. I mean, it obviously people were accumulating, but it just is hard to get past that barrier of like, why would I touch this? Like this is clearly going to zero versus when it's mooning. And then your emotional fog of like, no, this is never going to stop. How could I possibly sell? Like if you just do the opposite of your, it really is. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, And it's just so, and that's why, that's why setting up a buy just without emotion, just don't even think about it. Set up $10 a month. You think $10 a month, that's nothing. And then two years later you look and you're like, Oh, I, I have, I have uh, 0. 8, 0. 0.08 Bitcoins and that's worth like way more than the money that I put into it.
1: Yeah. And isn't it the same with like fantasy football? If you think of a dynasty asset, say you got in a dynasty league, James Conner off of waivers or something like that, or drafted him in the fourth round of a rookie league. And, you know, he moons and you're like, how could I ever trade him? But if someone is offering you a Mike Evans for James Conner and you can cash out for and that. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just all. straight profit it's just so hard because you rode that ride and it's like, how could this ever, ever stop? James Connery is going to be a bell cow forever. Who's J- Jalen Samuels? It doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, I, I, and it's just impossible. I don't know. Like, I think it's too hard for a normal person to do that. Like I, I had all of these opportunities to sell on the way up because I got in at a good time on a lot of these coins. And uh, at the end, you know, you just end up holding a lot of bags. I guess the the biggest difference for me now Versus twenty sixteen is I don't really believe in any of the alts. I don't really believe in Ethereum. I think that Calibra is like a better way to send these payments and um, to do to do these transfers without remittances than Ethereum is. Although a lot of the people who build Ethereum want to like do all these things with it, like like Augur, like the, yeah. the the marketplaces and stuff. Which like I'll be honest, a lot of the things that the ethereum project people want to do i don't really understand like i i don't have the either either had the technical background or the financial background to understand the point of a lot of the coins
1: yeah no i mean i was you know maybe in in if i i would like to think that when you were buying some of those shit coins that you thought that they might have value to to you know really do some good or whatever but deep down we knew we were just paying playing like penny slots and just hoping to like right. and now and now we're left sitting with them and my thing is like I'm just never going to touch them because the whole reason we bought them was in case one of them went to the moon or hockey sticked or whatever so think about how sick to your stomach you'd be even if you sold it back at even value and then one of them all of a sudden stellar lumens- and
0: one of yeah stellar lumens is worth eight dollars a coin and then all of a sudden I'm <laughs> on vacation in hawaii Right. So I just do the thought experiment of, could I
1: live my, with myself if one of these does a hundred X that I'm like, no. So I'm just going to sit on them, even though it's, you know, you delete them from your block folio you don't think about it. You just make sure you remember how to get access to them because that is also another issue. I'm like, is that on finance? Is that on my
0: ledger? Uh, is yeah. That- I'm pretty sure there are coins that are in my block folio that I have tracked right now that I that I think I probably couldn't go get. Yeah. I literally have on my to-do
1: list and it's been there for no joke, probably seven months, like crypto audit, like go through and look at where my coins and I just never have brought myself to do it in this long. And I still need to go do that here soon.
0: So it's a tough life. So yes, so right now, as we are broadcasting, Bitcoin is at $9,800. So we are, we are right on the crest of 10K again. Do you think that we hit 10k by the end of the month? Because like, there's going to be a lot of resistance there at 10k, I would imagine. And I don't even really know what resistance means. I just hear a lot of smart people say that, like a lot of buy walls there, a lot of sell walls there, a lot, you know. But I, I think that it seems like things are on an upward trend. The one thing that could sort of halt the uh, the progression would, of course, be. I mean, what if something really bad happens with the U.S. economy? Because people would probably flee Bitcoin in that uh, in that event. I have a I have a bet right now with one of the Daily Roto subscribers that Bitcoin will be 11K or higher on December 15th, 2019. Do you think I win that bet or lose that bet?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's like Bitcoin's crazy enough that it could like moon and then crash below it like during that time. But uh, I, I think I like your bet there.
0: Yeah, I think I I think I like it too. The thing is, is just you know, it it seems like, and I don't do a ton of like, uh, I have like some stocks, but I like have someone do it for me. Like, I don't track the stock market at all. I have like a guy, but it seems like things are not great right now. You might even know more about this than me. No, I I,
1: I don't actually follow it. Uh, that stuff that closely and I always find all the explainer articles for like Bitcoin price movement to be kind of silly when you consider just how many variables there are and everyone just always wants to pin it on one thing like oh Libra coin announcement so that's why this happened or oh China shut down this exchange so that's why this happened when the market is is so much bigger than that I don't know if you've listened to um like on coin talk they've had that guy ledger status on who's looks at like the price movements a lot and he's you know you know, describe the market manipulation that occur a lot. So I think like on the micro movements, like within like 500 to $1,000, it's like so hard to truly explain. I guess the more interesting thing is like when it moves like three or $4,000 over a span of a couple months, Yeah, like what is causing that versus like, why did we move from 9,000 to 9,600? $9, it's like, it could be a million things.
0: It is, it is crazy to me in all of this. I do, I think that we just forget it's just crazy that Bitcoin has existed for uh, now, like ten and a half years. Like, yeah. if, if Bitcoin, I, I do pretty strongly believe that if Bitcoin was going to go to zero, it already would have. Yeah, and it's never been hacked. The exchanges have been hacked, but the the code has
1: has never been compromised, which is is still pretty it, incredible. You remember
0: when it? Do you remember when it almost did? This was this was about this was about seven months ago. But one of, the, one of the Bitcoin open source guys on GitHub noticed a massive vulnerability and was like, if I would not have fixed this, the whole chain would have been compromised. Oh, I missed that. I feel like that should have been. A I mean, that start. was that was when no, that was when no one cared, right? Like Bitcoin was worth four thousand dollars. No one cared. No one was, no one was on the Bitcoin Reddit. No one was listening to the Bitcoin podcast. This is actually <laughs> this is actually a funny thing that I noticed. Uh, thinking about doing the agenda for the show, I used to listen to all these crypto podcasts and like watch these crypto YouTube channels. They just all stopped. Like yeah. as as it fell, people just stopped. They stopped doing the podcast. They stopped doing their YouTube videos. And I wonder how many of them are going to come back.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, like Doug Polk, you know, he had a big poker channel. He started a crypto channel in November of the bull run and he ran it up. Granted, he knew how to do YouTube well. He had a good editor, he knew how to play the game, but he ran it up to like 200,000 subscribers in two months just riding the bull run. And then the market crashed. He's like, screw this. I'm not going to make videos that get 25,000 views when I'm used to getting, you know, 300,000 views. And I think a lot of people felt the same. I mean, people just don't want to hear about crypto content when the the market's not doing well. And again, to tie it back to fantasy football, why do, you know, all the seasonal draft pod or seasonal pods lose listenership, you know, around week eight, and nine, because half the teams aren't in it anymore and don't care about who to pick up on the waiver wire, right. you know, like people lose interest in this stuff when it's not personally relevant to them.
0: Yeah, and I get I mean people are probably tilting listening to this. Like, I, I a large chunk of the Takecast audience doesn't care about crypto. I actually think the the thing that people enjoy most about this podcast is talking to people in DFS and then hearing them talk about losing. the The most popular episode of this show ever was the one I did with Dink and Wiggins, where they talked about like, oh, I'm I'm 350k in the hole. I like almost quit playing DFS. Like that's the number one thing. And then people like to hear professional athletes get interviewed but the the bitcoin episodes do not do very well but this is my podcast and i can talk about it if i want to well here
1: i i can't help out with the professional athlete part but i can give some people some schadenfreude if that's what they're looking for and tie it into crypto like in the past three months i've stopped just sports betting almost completely cold turkey because you know it coincide with bitcoin mooning and i think of any of my money on like bovada or these offshore sites as like bitcoin because i'm depositing in that and i'm withdrawing in that and right. i'm like i'm i'm not even like probably 52 percent like ev betting like much right. much less when i compare it to if i just let that money sit in bitcoin you know right. it's like three or four x since then so i can't even stomach placing a bet on any of those sites. Cause I, when I look at it, I took such a bath relative to losing on the site and losing what it could have accrued in Bitcoin value. So there for your listeners, I, I have eaten shit sports betting in the first half of the year and just stopped it. Cause I'm like, this money is just better sitting in a, a crypto account.
0: I'm on, I'm on a not good run of sports <laughs> betting either, but it's because I don't really bet on baseball at all. Cause I don't have like a methodology for it at all. And, I bet on NBA player props a little bit, but those are gone. So right now the only thing that I have to wager on is golf. And when you're when you're betting a lot of golf, you need to be betting like matchups and three balls and stuff, but I let, I like just bet outrights. Yeah. So like if you're and I I have two outright wins on the year. I had Ricky in Phoenix and I had Rory 2 weeks ago at the Canadian Open. But if Rory had not won the Canadian Open and I, I mean that was, you know, he was only 11 to 1 to win that, but if Rory had not won that it it would be close to like redeposit time on these books <laughs> which I like, yeah, never want to see it. I know. It, it, it's so
1: fun. And then it's it's still not that profitable. I just started reading uh, The Logic of Sports Betting, that new book by yeah, Ed and Miller. I, I,
0: I want to email him and see if he'd want to do the show. You think he would? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he would.
1: Uh, I, I actually haven't read that much of it. But the first chapter was just all and again, I kind of knew this, but he just really laid it out plainly about the way the markets are set so early on. And he used the analogy of you know, the, the Black Friday deals where everyone shows up and sprints into the store to try to get the three TVs that are $96 or whatever. And then everyone else who comes in is left with, you know, there's no stock or they're having to buy TVs at regular price. And that's what happens with these lines is that they get beaten up. So unless you're hawking these lines and devoting your life to seeing when they're posted in acting so quickly like you're not getting any value with a lot of these bets and so it's just a sobering thing to realize you know you can't casually you know do this stuff and expect to be really EV you have to be (laughs) immersed I mean you get to do it for a full-time job so you're constantly thinking in that space but for me I can't but but
0: even then I'm like I'm still grinding DFS so much that it would be like and I'm like I am a plus EV DFS player so it would be taking away for me to hawk like betting stuff that much, it would be taking away EV time that I'm spending on DFS.
1: Right. And exactly. That's a, that's another thing that, yeah, just the opportunity costs of, you know, how else could you spend your time and in your money? Uh, so, yeah, I think you definitely have to be really honest with yourself about, are you just trying to be uh, do this for entertainment purposes and make sure you're kind of getting your money in a little bit good, or are you really trying to be plus EV at this which is a whole nother can of worms and right away in the book he says like if you're actually wanting to do this for a living you need to get into statistical analysis and data modeling because otherwise you don't have a prayer.
0: Yeah and like I I consider like I am ahead lifetime betting but I don't consider my like I'm not I'm not Davis the Greek you know like (laughs) I'm not I I probably am not going to run 57 percent against most lines so I'm not going to bet on a ton of lines and I'm not going to bet a ton of money because I don't expect to live off of that income.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've just pretty much come to grips with the fact that I love consuming all of this content and I like being involved in it, but I, I just know for me, it's for entertainment and I want to get my money in good, but I'm not going to go that extra mile to be, you know, devote my life to it. Cause it's
0: just not, it's not something I'm going to do. This is actually a good transition point, though, because we're talking about, like, time preference and ways that you choose to spend the finite resource of time. And uh, something that you and I are both pretty passionate about is, like, finding ways to divorce the brain from screens. I I will say this maybe is the worst I've ever been in terms of, like, not being able to put my phone down, like, always needing to have a podcast on, always, you know, watching some sport checking some DFS score and it's like a con it's like a confluence of things so this is the first year in baseball DFS that I've been doing 150 lineups so doing 150 for the noon slate for the night slate for the showdown slate and the women's world cup is on and playing DFS for that and golf is going on and doing DFS for that and it's I've found it so incredibly hard to just not be checking my phone, like it's horrible. Like my, you know that you know how Apple does the screen time report. Like <laughs> yeah. I looked at, I looked at my screen time report from before baseball started. Uh, so in March to now, I'm up like 150 percent in screen time just because I like for real cannot stop. Like I was up last night watching a Dodgers Giants game until one o'clock in the morning because I was winning the night showdown. And like, yeah, great, okay, cool. You won money. You got to watch it happen but i i could not have changed the outcome by watching and i should have just went to sleep
1: yeah it is it's it's tough because all of those uh those apps whether it's dfs or twitter or whatever they all like our brains are rewarded constantly it's uh crazy man And they're designed in a way, too, to you you think about the things like the refresh button or the likes or the way your DraftKings score and ranking is constantly moving. They are engineered like slot machines to give us those dopamine things to where we become like literally, you know, powerless to how persuasive they are in, in capturing our attention.
0: Should we talk about the Black Mirror episode?
1: With, I've only seen one of them
0: of the new three episodes. You didn't, you didn't watch the Twitter one. No, I watched the uh, Miley Cyrus one. <laughs> so I guess this is, and I would, this isn't even on our agenda. But uh, an interesting thing is that Black Mirror is not good anymore because it doesn't have anything interesting to say. It's already made the point that we've taken all of this stuff too far, and all of these technological advancements have. Uh, what's the what's the line from Jurassic Park? Just because you could do it doesn't mean you should, right? Yeah. But but we're, we are we have jumped that shark. We are we are officially past that point with technology. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I've been I've been thinking. Yeah, I I kind of
1: agree with you. I've, I haven't seen the other two Black Mirrors, but it does that. All the episodes now seem to just have a similar template, and sometimes there's some interesting stuff in there. But yeah, I still the, think
0: it's a well-made show. Like I enjoyed yeah. the Miley Cyrus episode even if it was like not great TV. I still thought yeah. it was like enjoyable. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've been I've been thinking about this stuff a
1: lot. I read a couple of books that were really, I'll, I'll recommend. Uh, this guy, Cal Newport, did one uh, just called Digital Minimalism. And then this other artist, uh, Jenny O'Dell, wrote a book called How to Do Nothing. And both of them kind of talking about the attention economy. And what I liked about both of the books is neither of them, I feel like there's been so many think pieces about like, just go cold Turkey or just get rid of it or whatever. But they were kind of talking about more practical ways of enjoying the non, you know, digital things like to really be able to pull away. You need to find the things outside of it that you. it's it's not like you should just like shut your brain down and not do anything productive at all. No, it's, it's reacquainting yourselves with the things, whether it's, it's hiking or or a sport or meditation or whatever it is, a a bird watching or whatever leisure activity, it's finding those things. And then you quickly realize, oh, I I don't need, you know, the constant pull of, of Twitter or whatever to make me happy. And so I like that they approach it from that standpoint and not just shaming you for being on social because there, there are good things we get out of it. It's just that they're engineered to capture all of our attention and hoard it in a way that has such massive diminishing returns.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I mean, that is the key, like finding things to do that are not related to a screen. Like, and the, the things I have in my life that are not on a screen are golf, skateboarding, and my dog, but like, when I walk my dog or go play with my dog, a lot of times I'm still listening to a podcast. And like, does that count? Like that, that's still probably like a little bit of a serotonin, like a dopamine rush.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I had the realization. I mean, that that's part of the reason why podcasts are great is, you know, I, I love being able to listen to podcasts while I'm doing chores or washing the dishes or mowing the lawn. It's like the perfect thing to make those activities more tolerable. But I've even recently like when I go for a run, I used to always listen to music or for a podcast. And now I've not been doing it and really enjoying it almost as a form of kind of meditation of just being with my thoughts and clearing it. And I used to not even be able to do that. I'd be like, Oh, I can't go for a run. I don't have my headphones. And now it's something that I, I found a, a way to enjoy just by, you know, you do have to work that muscle, it doesn't come naturally, but then you start to see the, the appeals of it. And again, it's not saying like, it's because this is bad. It's seeing the appeal in that thing of itself.
0: Right. And like, I don't know, but like, I just, while you were saying that I thought about going to exercise without my headphones in. And I like, I mean, I just, I like shudder to think of it honestly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just, just like a few things, because I know this stuff can always seem like abstract, but I did make a few small tweaks, um, that really helped me like one thing that i realized is because i i have kind of a completist mentality you know like when i like a band i want to hear and read everything about them or a tv show or even on twitter like one of my things was i would turn notifications on for a handful of the accounts that i always wanted to make sure that i didn't miss their tweets which sounds silly but it's just like a completist mentality so what i realized was my brain had been distorted to where I knew every time I looked at my phone there was probably a notification, just by like the pure math of it. Yeah. And so I was wired to know that there was always I was the rat and I could always press the pellet mm-hmm. and that thing. And so what I've done is I've kind of converted, because I know I, I'm still going to be a completist, but I shifted, I put those accounts in an RSS feed. I used the uh the reader feedly and now like once a day, I go and check and it's like, I see those tweets almost as like an inbox and I can quickly read through them and now. I know if I go look at my phone right now, unless I have like a missed call or a text message, nothing's going to be on my screen. So I find myself not checking my phone knowing there's not the reward, you know, to suck me into
0: that. So that's like a small tweak I've made that's been really big. Do you have a smartwatch? Do you wear like, a, like an Apple watch or a Fitbit or whatever? No. So I wear an Apple watch, which like, I think, I think is like actually helpful. Like it reminds me to drink water. It tracks my exercise. It does all of that stuff. But the Apple watch is like even a further extension of that because like, I also feel like not only would I not go work out without my headphones, but like if my Apple watch was dead, I would be like, do I even want to go work out if I can't track these calories, which is like that's that is utterly insane. Like think about how insane that is. I don't want to go work out unless my watch can count how long I worked out for. Yeah, I I I don't I I I
1: see where you're coming from, but I also think that those kind of things can also help like the fact that it's helping you go exercise that's like a net positive
0: right like yeah and i agree yeah for sure and it really like it actually does really motivate me like the so on the apple watch they have the rings which is which counts how many minutes you exercise for and how many calories you burn in a day and like if at the end of the day i'm sitting there and my rings aren't closed i'll go walk the dog for half an hour to get them all closed like i will i will always try and get like good exercise goals in because of the watch. Yeah, and I think that's fine. Like the the way that if you're gamifying
1: things for like a net positive result, I think that's really good. Like I do something silly. I keep like just an Excel spreadsheet of the books that I read, and there is this weird sense of a con- like I don't do it in a performative way where I'm on like Goodreads and like doing reviews and and
0: whatever. But I just I'm, like I'm to- on Goodreads, but I'm not friends with anyone on Goodreads. Yeah. Like I just I just have it just so that I can like keep track. Sometimes I forget if I've read a book or not or whatever. Like
1: yeah, exactly. so it's a
0: Same thing. But there comes like there's a sense of accomplishment in finishing a book
1: and it's fun to go back and and see what you've read or I've just noticed like, whoa, all I've been reading is nonfiction and stuff like that. So that's like a, a little game for myself. And yeah, is it like silly and tedious? yeah, but it's like it helped give me structure and the overall, you know, activities like a net positive. So I I don't see anything wrong with with gamifying things. Uh, You know, I mean, you look at all of the, you know, popular exercise movements, whether it's CrossFit or Orange Theory, all of those things have found a way to gamify it in a way that makes it exciting or competitive or whatever. And that's why people are drawn to it. So I, I don't think that's bad at all.
0: I mean, yeah, anything that gets me up and moving is like good, right? Cause like I live such a, like my day is so sedentary. Like yeah. when you're, when you're working on a laptop all day long, like you, you, if you don't exercise, like you're, you're just so, like you're killing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: that is the other thing that I found and Cal Newport talks about this in that book, digital minimalism about aggressively scheduling leisure. And I definitely do this. Like I love planning out like, okay, I'm going to go run here. I'm going to go to a boxing class here. Oh, I I have an hour at lunch. I'm going to go for a walk at lunch. And once you start doing that, you find yourself trying to carve out those minutes. I'm like, oh man, I have 20 minutes before this appointment. I can read this book that i normally have yeah. only been reading in the morning and you, the more you do it the more you aggressively seek out those things that you really enjoy in it I've, I've noticed it has like a snowball effect and now you just covet every bit of possible free time because it's a moment for a walk or to read or to meditate or whatever those things that you value um and you start to prioritize them in a, in a new way which i think is a is a cool way cool thing to, to happen
0: all right, so the last thing that you and I both wanted to talk about, something something very near and dear to both of our hearts, zero running back drafting. And I know this podcast has been absolutely all over the place. I hope that the listeners are enjoying it as much as you and I are enjoying talking because this is the whole idea behind this podcast was I just wanted to talk with, uh, with my friends about things that I enjoy talking about. So first, are you doing the high stakes draft with Pat Corain again this offseason?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do the, uh, the main event again. And I actually saw Pat, uh, two nights ago, he, he was in Boston for work and we, and we got dinner and, uh, yeah, we were just talking about what an incredible year for zero RB it is because we've done zero RB every single year. Last year we did like a modified where we had the one-on-one. So we took girly. Um, but yeah, I, and I know you've been putting out a lot of content. You guys did a deep dive on Roto experts and, uh, Sean Siegel's still been hammering it with his, MFL 10 of death stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm getting very, very jazzed about zero RB. And the more I look at like the landscape and the ADPs, I just think it's setting up for the perfect year for it.
0: We are we are big on the but at Roto Experts, I would say our our guide to winning your draft is basically the modified Zero R B where uh, if you have the first five picks, you take one of the stud running backs. And then if you're outside those first five picks, you just go, you just hammer the wide receivers because the only second and third round running backs that we have as like good values are Chubb. If you can project him for like 70 targets and Damian Williams, but if like, if you have Chubb projected for 40 targets, uh, probably just Damian Williams. Yeah. And, and again, people have such a hard time
1: stomaching um, going that long without taking running backs. And yeah. Then Latavius the- Murray is your first running back or whatever. Right. But the other thing that makes it so attractive is that there's so many good wide receivers in those rounds, three, four, five, six this year. You can Just- get digs in the fourth round. Dude, I saw that and uh, I saw someone post a screenshot of a uh FFPC draft. And yeah, they had digs at like four one or four two. And I was like, I was talking with Pat. I'm like, I would have thought with recency bias the way feeling, Yeah, he's like two right? eleven Yeah. That's what you think. For, for sure. He would be I'm like, what is what is happening? Uh and then that's not even to speak of all these, you know, breakout wide receivers. You know, people are getting hip to DJ Moore, but Calvin Ridley, Christian Kirk. I mean, there's so many sick wide receivers you can load up on. And then the second everyone else starts zigging back, to taking wide receivers, then you're loading up on all these talented backup running backs um, with various different uh, roles And I liked how, I think you were talking about how Dink referred to it about kind of layering these types of running backs. And that's something Pat and I have kind of learned through trial and error about whether are you just chasing pure production with these RBs, pure handcuffs, like hybrid stuff. Then, And I do
0: agree with that. You want a portfolio. Yeah, you, you, you really want to get a mix. So the, Drew's idea came from best ball but I actually think it makes even more sense in weekly management leagues where if Giovanni Bernard just like gets benched for Travion Williams you just drop that dude you just like don't even have to care you just get rid of him or a theoretic uh is not playing like in the slot or whatever you just drop him but you really want to have a like, probably three of those, like, satellite, like, Jalen Richard, Chris Thompson, Naheem Hines guys in a zero RB draft, but then you also want to start, you want to load up on Chase Edmonds, Tony Pollard, Wayne Gallman, like, these guys who are one injury away from 18 touches a game.
1: Yeah, and one of the other category of those layers that I think Pat and I realized is important. Cause I do agree. Like you need a couple of those satellite backs, especially early in the season when you're just needing to get those nine or 10 points, like you said, in managed leagues. Um, but one thing we learned was, you know, you do want to bet on talent, uh, in a lot of these situations or use the the really talented guys to break ties like one of the mistakes we made and it didn't burn us too much because he didn't really get going but we drafted Rex Burkhead pretty early last year it seemed like he had an early path to carries with Sony Michelle her and we passed on Kerry and Johnson for him and that was just one of those situations looking back where it was like yeah we could project more carries out of the gate for Burkhead but it wasn't a smart bet in that when we were looking at the potential talent profiles and who to break out. And I look at what Sean does with his teams and he's always grabbing the most talented guy in these situations, you know, whether it's a justice Hill or these guys that look buried last year, it was Chubb and you, you looked at it and you didn't see the path. To it, but these guys that are really talented, it's not always going to work out. But when it does work out, it's going to hit in a big way.
0: Yeah, there are some really there are actually like some really good examples of that this year. So we have Tampa Bay with Ronald Jones, Sean Wilson, Peyton Barber. Like I think taking Ronald Jones like is a guy that I would have hated in like 2015 as like a first like a guy who was drafted highly and then flopped. But like looking at it now, I'm like the most likely scenario is that that dude plays a ton. And then we have, like, uh, in Seattle, we have Rashad Penny and Chris Carson. Like, Chris Carson is probably being way overdrafted because you can say whatever you want about the Seahawks and how egalitarian they are. They they want to play Rashad Penny. They want Rashad Penny to get a lot of snaps.
1: Yeah. No, I, I like all of those kind of post-hype uh, zero RB candidates, the the yeah. other one being Royce Freeman. In, yeah,
0: Royce in- Freeman's actually probably my favorite one because – People actually, I think a lot of people don't realize, Devontae Booker had like 120 touches last year. Like <laughs> he had 75 targets.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um all, yeah, those guys, those three that you mentioned, Jones, Penny, and Freeman, where you can you know you're getting still talented guys the recency bias i mean everyone's just out on them cuz they did nothing their rookie years and they're whoever's ahead of them it's just super fragile risky situation i mean those are the places you want to be investing for zero rb
0: yeah and i mean i guess for someone who's never done a zero rb draft before you're you're going to hate your team leaving the draft right like you're oh. going to you're going to look at it and you're going to be like dude, I'm starting, you know, I'm starting Naheem Hines as my running back two in week one, and you're going to feel like that's so horrible. But the, the, I guess the, really the number one tenant of zero RB and why it makes more sense than just attacking running backs is wide receivers just get hurt way less than running backs do. Like that's really the core principle of what powers the whole thing. Yeah. And
1: you do, again, I feel like we always have to mention these caveats. Um, It needs to be the right league setting. You want to be able to have an extra flex where you can start a wide receiver. You want it to be the, you know, ideally full point PPR. But to your point of having to sit with that discomfort, I mean, every year Pat and I post our draft on Twitter or whatever. We get killed. I mean, even the high stakes guys come around and they're looking at our team and they're like, what the hell are you doing? Um, And maybe they're right because we've only had um, one successful season so far. But again, part of the zero RB thing is when it all comes together, it comes together in such a massive way that you give yourself a chance to win a $300,000 top prize or whether it's in the best ball championships or whatever. Like the goal of these super anti-fragile teams isn't to just squeak by and win your 12 person league. It's, it's to win the big prize at the uh, at the end of the rainbow, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I think that that actually is like really a great point is that zero RB is I think the most optimal strategy for the big championships because it gives you the best chance to run super hot. Like what if Mark Ingram breaks his foot in week two, Justice Hill's like running back 8 for the rest of the year. Like that dude is going to get 320 touches if Mark Ingram gets hurt, you know. Yeah. And and we can't guess
1: which running backs are going to get hurt or whatever, but we can stock our bench with nine of these talented running backs who we know that could have a variety of outs whether it's just outplaying the guy ahead of him or an injury or whatever. Um, and yeah, it can, uh, it can be really successful. I will say last year, the kind of modified approach that everyone's taking, I think smartly this year, where you are taking one of those top five running backs, it is, it's a lot easier right out of the gate to fill one slot, like an RB two slot with a, a zero RB candidate than it is to fill two. You know, if you get, uh, stuck drafting your first running back in round seven or eight, but um, I think you can still pull it off. But it is
0: nice to get one of those top five picks and then hammer wide receiver from there. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I think, that, uh, I think that's going to do it for us here. What do you want to plug to the folks?
1: Uh, nothing to plug. I get, I've get. i been doing uh, some videos uh, with Denny under the umbrella fantasy Mensa for 4 for 4, uh, just some comedic videos, and we'll be trickling those out throughout the offseason. So, yeah, you can check those out on our Twitters or 4 for 4.
0: All right. There we go. Everyone, Peter Overzet. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks, man. This was fun.